ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 10, Bimini and Beyond. I was with Alex once in Coconut Grove at the fancy, fancy house of another drug smuggler. And there was a beautiful girl laying by the pool who Alex was hugely impressed with. And we took her out for a boat ride. They started dating and within uh, 18 months or so, they had a a beautiful son. This is Scott Schraus, a friend and former smuggling partner of Alex DeCubis's. It was difficult to be doing all the things we were doing and be married. There's a conflict there. I remember he had a wonderful wedding, chartered a really cool yacht. We had a great time. And then the next day it was like, man, we got to gear up. We got a load coming in. And his his wife was not happy that he canceled the honeymoon or said, maybe you could take your sister on the honeymoon. Didn't go over real well. Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching him, he's going away for the rest of his life. If they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. I'm Brett Forrest, a senior writer at ESPN the Magazine. And my name is John Fish. I'm a producer for ESPN. And at the end of last episode, Julio Cesar Nasser David, the head of the North Coast Cartel in Colombia, has summoned Alex. Alex gets on the plane for South America. Back in those days, if you were a drug trafficker in the U.S., the one thing you didn't want was a Colombian stamp in your passport. Right, because they're, they're, the cops, if they looked at it, they'd right know, away. hey, this guy's, you know, this guy's in the wrong place. So Alex flies to Venezuela, and two of Julio Cesar Nasser David's men pick him up at the airport. And they drive him along this highway. We drove down that highway, too, at least part ways. And it's a beautiful highway along, along the ocean, uh, along in the northern coastal region of Colombia. The drive takes several hours. They end up in Barranquilla, which is the base of the North Coast Cartel. These guys drive Alex to a Middle Eastern restaurant. The place is closed down. There are about 30 guys out front, all armed. Alex walks inside. And inside. He didn't really want to go to this, but No, but he, you know, he walks in. There's a long table in the middle of the restaurant. It's piled high with Middle Eastern food. There are a couple of belly dancers. Alex takes a seat. Door opens in the back, and in walks Julio Caesar Nasser David, the old man. Everybody called him the old man. And to Alex's surprise, this Nasser guy is polite, gracious, soft-spoken even. He came off as a gentleman businessman, and they ate and they saw eye to eye. Alex went down to meet with Julio Caesar Nasser David, and he came back. He said, well, one, the guy has this name like a Roman emperor. 
and he even looks a little bit like a Roman emperor. This is Scott Schrauss. He was impressed with the, he said, the guy has his own graveyard. You know, he took me out to a hill and he's pointing at this and he's like, makes no issue out of having people killed and this, but now he wants to do this giant load. John, Julio Caesar Nasser David, as big as this guy was, he was the head of a cartel in Colombia. He needed Alex the Cubis. He needed a transportation specialist who could carry that load the last step into the U.S. He had, he had a guy, but he was, he was unhappy with it. This guy had been underperforming. Everybody knew this guy as the zombie. Zombie. <laughs> He's a legendary figure for the people who knew him. Everybody has a nickname. The one thing yeah. that you'll see as the story goes along yeah. is there's a nickname for everybody. Yeah, nobody wanted to know anybody's last name, and it was better if you didn't know the first name either. Anyway, this is the guy, the zombie. After each score, well, this is how he got his nickname. After each score, he would take the money that he'd earned, he'd buy an enormous amount of heroin, and he'd hole up in his house, he'd just get totally whacked out. And when the money ran out, that's when the zombie would resurface again and do another operation. Well, Nasser needed someone who was dependable, and he saw what a lot of people had always seen in Alex. He was a man of his word. He was a tough guy who wasn't going to get pushed around. He was someone that could command an operation with a lot of people under him. He was a leader. Uh Alex had always been a leader, just like he was in wrestling. He just brought that with him. Paul Pelletier, the federal prosecutor who led this case, he, he explains it pretty well. He developed a very trusted relationship with Julio Nasser. In the drug business, trust is the coin of the realm. Soon after their meeting, we're talking 1986, Alex and Julio Nasser start planning their first operation together. Of course, it involved the Bahamas. The Bahamas had been the staging ground for cocaine and the cocaine trade for a long time. Well, they kind of reference it as a corruptible government. There was a, it was a very loose atmosphere over there. Yeah. Yeah, and the traffickers, they'd always flown product directly from Colombia to the U.S., and they would land on remote airfields. But but these loads were limited by the capacity of the planes, and the fact that these flights originated in Colombia could sometimes cause problems. Well, the Bahamas are right off of the coast of Florida. If you look at a map, it's pretty staggering when you realize that the Bahamian island of closest to the Florida coast is Bimini. It's about 50 miles from Miami. It was tailor-made for Colombians to hand off their packages to the American transportation specialists. Well, the Bahamas is a key link in this whole thing. It's 700 islands scattered over 100,000 square miles, and it's just perfect for smuggling. It was just the, the perfect place combined with the giant coastline of Florida. What's not to like? Bring it in to Bimini. That was Scott Shiraz. Bimini... And the Bahamas, as a whole, they weren't just close, they were also easily bought. The police chief on Bimini was a guy by the name of Glenn Roll. Glenn Roll, legendary figure in the trade. They call him the sheriff. Right. He became kind of a de facto partner of drug organizations that used his territory to transit cocaine. There was an airstrip there, the cartels would fly the drugs to Bimini, and the pilot would either land there where the transport group would pay Glenn Roll about $40,000 for use of the airstrip or just do an airdrop off the coast. Right. And if there were ever any problems, sometimes there were. Sometimes the, the police there would seize your airplane, for example. But Glenn Roll could solve all your sure. problems. Again, Scott Shirouse. It was also interesting how easy it was to do business there, illegal business. 
We deal with Glenn Roland Bimini and through him pay off the police in that area. And uh, you could get your airplane back, you could get your people out of prison, and in the perfect world, you could sometimes buy your cocaine back. The Bahamas, everything seemed surmountable. The Bahamas were perfect for a guy like Julio Nasser. He had always had massive operations in mind. And he let Alex in on his new plan. The Nirma was a 100 and 50-foot freighter that plied the waters of the Caribbean and the, and the Gulf of Mexico with, with regular cargo. And it was the perfect, perfect, perfect way to smuggle co- cocaine because if you ever saw it, you would never expect that that slow, big freighter was going to be smuggling huge amounts of cocaine into South Florida. That was Paul Pelletier, the former federal prosecutor. Julio Nasser, he had pioneered the use of coastal freighters to smuggle marijuana. You almost need a ship that size if you're going to do substantial loads of pot because pot is bulky. What Nasser did is he just changed the cargo from this low margin, as you said, bulky marijuana, now to this compact, highly profitable cocaine. Now the Nerma would enable him and his North Coast cartel to ship tons of cocaine at a time. The Nerma had a route to Jacksonville from Columbia. I heard stories that, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, they called the ship the good ship Lollipop. That was Jim Burke of the Boca Raton Police Department. The Nerma carried legitimate cargo, and the papers were in order. It looked completely legit. Great idea. Full Danish crew. There was no reason that you would suspect this huge coastal freighter that uh, was carrying anything but legitimate cargo. Right. And by June 88, Alex DeCubis was orchestrating his first offload of the Nerma. There were about 1,200 kilos aboard. 1.3 tons worth about $18 million. If we can go into some... Cocaine 101? Yeah, exactly. But the numbers the numbers are fascinating because at that point, grams of cocaine often were selling for about $90 retail. But see, that's after they were stepped on you know, in, in the parlance. That's basically... Cutting, cutting Plan. in half. How would, how would you say? You take a pure product <laughs> yeah. and you dilute it to make more of it. And they would usually, back in, back in those days, they would, they would add lidocaine. The resulting product that someone would buy on the street would be half cocaine, half lidocaine, but no one could really tell the difference. So at retail, a kilo could be worth as much as $90,000, which would have made the first Nerma load worth on the street $108 million. But it really fluctuated. It was a matter of what you could get for it, and they kept using the Nerma. The loads kept increasing. And as Nasser pushed for more product, here's Scott Schrauss. Up until that point, the 600 kilos was a big, big load. The idea of six, eight, ten thousand 10,000 kilos, you know, almost 25,000 pounds of Coke, that's like a bedroom in a house, floor to ceiling, wall to wall of cocaine. And that's just an absurd amount of money. And it was all running through Alex. He was commanding this major operation. He was coordinating a series of vessels to meet in the ocean, in the Bahamas, in the middle of the night. We would meet off of the Berry Islands. This is David Lemieux, part of Alex's crew. The Nurmer would slow down to about four or five knots. We'd pull up alongside, throw the ropes up, and they had a, uh, a net with a crane 
They'd have it already full with all the, the bundles. They'd swing it out to the side, drop it down on the lobster boat, get the net out of the way, cut the two lines that were rafted off to them, and away we'd go. We'd, we'd head back to the island. The Nurmer would keep its route. What would you do with the product once you had it in the smaller boats? Once we got back into the islands, we'd have go-fasts or hidden compartment boats, whichever it was that was going to carry this stuff. We'd dole it out, and I'd keep track of, like, this guy would get 500. All right, Billy Bob got 500. Ray Dray got uh, 300, whatever they could hold. I'd give Alex the paperwork. And the guys, some of them were in Palm Beach. Some of them were in the Keys. They were all over. They'd bring it in. And from then on, Alex was in charge of keeping track of who got what. And, you know, I did basically all the work in the Bahamas. Where was Alex when the offloading was going on? In Miami. He never came over. Why not? Well, because he had the record. At the time, they, everybody didn't want to really go to the Bahamas if you, you know, if you already had a guilty on stuff. So during the operation, was he communicating with you? Towards the end, yeah, we actually had a, a phone that could work over there. For a long time, no. You know, this was back in the day when a cell phone was the Motorola brick, you know, a big thing, and there was no uh, coverage whatsoever over in the Bahamas. But the last couple of times, you know, it finally worked. I finally uh, get done in the middle of the night or whatever, and the next morning I'd get somewhere and, you know, I'd call them and say, yep, everything's sweet. Once the boats had secured the cocaine in their hidden compartments, they would make the run into South Florida. Jim Burke of the Boca PD explains. Now the boats would not come in the same island. They would try to spread out. One might come into Miami, one might come into Jupiter, one might come into Boca Raton, into Florida, into Fort Lauderdale. It's just whatever. You're not going to have all three loaded vessels come in the same inlet, they're going to say. And they also had security, another boat, which Alex might have been in, watching the whole thing, and just to make sure that, you know, hey, there's nothing, no law enforcement is in the area. Where do the drugs go from there? They would bring them into um, warehouses, people's houses, people who lived on the intercoastal. Uh, we had part of our investigation where Alex was part of owning a farm in Ocala, and they would use white vans and transport the drugs to Ocala, Florida, offload it in a barn, store it there, and then distribute it you know, through to Detroit, Chicago, North Carolina. It all depends. Okay, by this point, Yarmir John, the Czech guy, remember? Remember him from, from the Cali prison? He comes back into the picture. Because if you remember, it was it was JJ who had gotten Alex involved in, in ripping. And then he himself, JJ, subsequently served some prison time. So now he's back out. And Alex is is a huge operator by this point. So JJ goes to work for Alex. So things sort of flip-flop there. And he's doing a number of things for him. He's, security. He's, yeah, running security. He's helping to offload the product. He's finding stash houses. Here's JJ. We go on a Bayview Drive, rent a place. I go over there with my English and say, hey, my mother and parents coming from Czech. We need this house over here. Impress the family. I need a dock. My father is a captain, blah, 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 blah. So we go stuff like this. Bring the load. A small boat comes to the comes to the boat and we're supposed to offload it so we smoke a joint and uh how are we going to do it man they just fucking kill me. boom we start throwing kilos out of the boat like a football into garage 
well, after 50 kilos, you ain't throwing no more. <laughs> you know, it gets tough. So you get diving bags and drag it and then laugh about it. And uh, really neighbors not around. It's like we all float 500 kilos an hour, another 500 kilos. And then we smoke another joint and uh, eat something. Or for another 100 kilos, 200, 500. And to turn around, you got a 2,000 kilo in a garage. So it was like a... Like no big deal. Hey, get this boat out of here because it's it's a, been doing business. Okay, another boat comes in the morning. We wait for the night. Offload some more. Put it in a house, and I'm staying in the house. When we move the when we move the kilos out of the house, we cannot use it no more. We go get these go-go dancing girls. I say, hey, I need some girls and children and, and uh, some action around this house. You got all the coke, all the food. Oh yeah, we can move in. If you couldn't tell, J.J. was describing how they would offload cocaine from a boat into a safe house along the coast of Florida. But once they pack the goods into the safe houses, then they're able to plug the product into their distribution. So they smuggle the drugs in, and then they sell the drugs. And that generates a ton of cash. And it enables everybody in the crew to get into some interesting things. David Lemieux gets into horse racing, race cars. He and his partner bought a horse. Chetsky, he handed it over to the trainer and just said, hey, do something with this. Right, right. And the first time they go see it race, the horse wins. So I'm like, yeah, this is pretty cool owning a horse. I didn't realize it would be that big of a thrill because I drag raced for years and, you know, winning a drag race was pretty neat. But man, these horses turn for home. Chetsky grabs the lead and just kind of pulling away down the stretch. Man, your hair's standing up on your arms and you're like, oh my God, this is wild. And uh, he went ahead and wee-weed on the field and uh, just ran away with it and we made a lot of money. Kept the limo all night, went to High Lie that night and just kept partying. I guess we bought probably three or four more horses after that. And uh, they all won for us. They all won. David has this great picture. One of his horses has won the race. They're in the winner's circle as a group. There's David. There's Alex, the biggest pot smuggler in Florida. And there's one of the Cali Cartel brothers. He said the feds would have loved to have seen this one. Remember O.C. Davis? Alex had met him at Club Fed in in Eglant. So he he has this marina that serviced boats. O.C.'s marina. Play on his name. But it was, really, it was really just a front for their smuggling business. But not everybody knew that, John. Here's David Lemieux. That was pretty crazy, the, um, the Miami Vice boats. I was running boats in the show for them and the marina at OCs. We took care of the Wellcrafts that Wellcraft had given Miami Vice these boats to use. And as a matter of fact, Don Johnson had one, ran it out of oil and it seized up. So he calls us up on a, I guess it was a Friday or Saturday to come over and, hey, I need this boat running and get over there. I said, well, once I see it, it's locked up. I said, you know, what would you do? Nothing. I said, did it have oil pressure? No, I thought the gauge was bad. This is Don Johnson? Yeah. So Don Johnson called you and said, come fix my boat. Yeah, it was pretty bizarre, but you didn't think of it at the time, you know? You, you didn't think that, uh, okay, these guys are showing how they capture the bad guys and we're the bad guys. How's that for life imitating art, imitating life? And Don Johnson has no idea. 
Okay, and then things go and they take a step beyond into the surreal. When David Lemieux, the drug boat runner, gets on the other side of the camera. As a matter of fact, we did a lot of work on the Miami Vice boats. I filmed a few episodes, too, where we'd uh, they'd lease the boats from us, pay us $1,000 a day. We'd bring uh, the boats, and we'd run different scenes all day long. I love this. When we were interviewing David Lemieux, we were like, hey, Miami Vice, you know, what, what did you think about it? And he's like, oh, yeah, the opening sequence of Miami Vice, which is iconic to this day, depicting the culture and excess of Miami in the drug years, At one point, the producers added a shot of a line of boats racing towards the city, going under this very famous bridge. Here's David Lemieux. It was the very opening of the show, the scene where they're all coming under the bridge, like eight boats, played in the beginning of every show. Are you in one of those boats? Yeah. You yourself are Mm -hmm. piloting that Mm -hmm. boat. Yeah, the wing boat. (laughs) Yeah. They're just showing them from behind. You know, they had a helicopter coming right up behind you with, uh, you know, filming. Matter of fact, we filmed all day one day and it was a nasty day. And we put the boat in from the trailer at uh, 79th Street boat ramp. And so I'm blasting back up the bay and I hear this and I'm like, man, what is that? I thought, you know, broke something in the engine. I turn around, there's a Coast Guard chopper like 30 feet off the deck right on our butt. You know, I guess we looked like we were bringing in a load or something. So I get back to the dock at 79th Street and they're waiting for us. And what are you doing out at it? I said, we're down filming Miami Vice. You know, we're gonna search the boat. Yeah, search away. You know, it was pretty crazy. So Alex continues to orchestrate loads off the Nirma through the Bahamas. They built up to about 5,500 kilos, which is six tons of pure Colombian cocaine. Alex is responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars of product. And he's enjoying this. He's enjoying the money. He's buying cars, motorcycles. He's got a bunch of boats. Wave runners. He buys an airplane. He's, he's a regular at the strip clubs in Miami. There are women all around them. It should come as no surprise that, that, that Alex, at this point, has separated from his wife. And he's also making regular runs to Chicago. Not only does he have a distribution network set up there, but he and his old friend Sam Frontera from the Ripping Days have opened a nightclub. Now, this was Sam's idea, to buy and refurbish a place called the Riviera Theater. And it's on the north side of Chicago. I don't think Sam and Alex have an interest in it anymore. At that time, it was really a laundry for them. It, w- it was a way to, to, to run their dirty drug money in one end and have it come out clean on the other. Or That, that was the theory. That's where Alex ran into Nicole Tristani. She has a nickname. They called her Nikki the Knife. That's quite a nickname. You don't forget that one. Here's Paul Pelletier. Nicole Tristani was a woman that Alex met in his visits to Chicago and his visits to gentlemen clubs and his visits to um, jello wrestling clubs. Nikki Tristani was a famous jello wrestler from Chicago. What is a jello wrestling club? <laughs> Far from me to know what a jello wrestling club is. However, what I've learned is that jello wrestling is a bunch of women who wrestle in a big pool of jello. And I believe uh, Nikki had achieved some level of stardom in the jello wrestling industry in Chicago. 
How did she get her nickname, Nikki the Knife? She got her nickname, Nikki the Knife, because allegedly, and she confirmed it with me, but uh, she stabbed a person at Wrigley Field um, and cut him uh, pretty good outside of Wrigley Field. Not sure the exact circumstances, but um, certainly I understand she was arrested for that. She was a tough girl. So Nikki moves down to Miami and the two start dating. I think there was something about a Harley Davidson. We'll let Jeremy or John tell the story. Nikki was 19 years old, uh, really sharp. Nikki's fancy. Nikki's a tough girl. Nikki can fight. Nikki is no joke. He said, hey, I want this uh, for this girl, Nikki. I want a uh, Harley. All right, so he gets a Harley, blue, white, whatever it was. I want a pink. So I mix this pink color, white and red, make pink, they go. No, man, I want a hot pink. I came out of the prison, I don't know what's a hot pink and hot, you know, highlighter, the, the green. I have no hot pink exist. So it took me to the store and showed me hot pink. There was like a 50 or $100 small can of hot pink. That's what you want on a bike? Girls got that on a fingernail. Beautiful girl, a small helmet. She sits on it, I say, hey, if that bike gets on the ground and you can lift it up, then you can ride it. Nikki gets to it and wrestle that Harley straight up, okay? She gets it up to Nikki. I say, all right, so I paint the bike for you. We took all the parts out and we painted hot pink. There was fenders, the oil thing. Everything was hot pink. When a girl gets on that bike, there was like hot pink fingernails, hot pink helmet and hot pink bike. There was like, you never see a girl and, and a Harley and, and a combination like this. It was so beautiful. It was really, really hot. She pulls up in Miami and it was like George dropping deal. So Alex had found the woman for him. But now he was finding himself at odds with the old man in Barranquilla, Julio Nasser. Remember, Nasser was the guy who liked to set records. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not that anybody was keeping records for cocaine smuggling, but he was the guy who'd sent the barge of marijuana up the Mississippi River, hundreds of thousands of pounds of pot. Yep, that was he him. He always wanted to smuggle more and more. Now this is creating a conflict for Alex. Yeah, because Alex had a really tight crew. A lot of these guys who worked with him and worked for him they were ex-wrestlers, ex-football players, got a lot of guys that he knew from Miami or Georgia. You know, some guys he would just say, hey, can you help offload this? Or, or other guys would get really involved. These were guys he could trust. He was comfortable with these guys. Well, Nasser tells him he's going to increase the size of the load, and Alex understands that this will exceed the size of his organizational capacity. He doesn't have enough boats in his crew to handle that amount. The old man wants to send to the Bahamas... More and more and more, he tells Nasser this. But instead of decreasing the size of the load, Nasser suggests that Alex just take on another boat. So David Lemieux finds a guy. And this guy was an informant. Panther, this is Swordfish 04. Uh, request to know if you have any Charlies out here tonight. Over. They're open fishing boat type vessels. Hey, here we have a... Uh it's the dark of night 
they're out to sea. There is no natural light anywhere. The Coast Guard plane is overhead. It's shooting the Nerma offload with an infrared camera. Alex's crew is executing an operation. But David Lemieux, he knows something's not right. I heard a plane and I knew we weren't in the, in the flight path. I was like, man, I wonder, you know, what is that? You could hear it like it was circling, but it, it was supposed to be high enough we wouldn't hear it. But I knew right then, I said, man, let's pick the pace up. And we're humping, humping, getting that stuff in there. And that's when I said, we got to move. You know, something, something's up. Something's up. You don't know what it is. What did that tell you? That <laughs> the gig was up. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, episode 11, Nowhere to Hide. As a military officer, I, I couldn't have drugs. I would not have drugs, illegal drugs around me at all. I know that he was kind of near making a bad choice. I took out a Colt Commander 9mm that I had acquired in the Army, and I was going to blow my head off. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.